Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy. And this chilly week we head inside the Arctic Circle for some organ music. Jennifer Walsh finds a surprise hookup between robots and ecology. Onya Gallagher is in Kilkenny for the Made in Ireland craft exhibition. And Moira Davy dares re-examine the photography of Peter Hujar. But we begin this time in the Arctic Circle with some tips on how to really move the room with composer and organist Robert Kogenvin. Kogenvin, who's based in Connemara, recently released a recorded version of his work, Bronze Lands, recorded live on the organ at Sydney Town Hall, but originally created in St Finbar's Cathedral in Cork. Locations are key in Kogenvin's music, as compositions are often designed to be played on a specific organ in a specific place, or, as the composer might say, for people gathered in a unique body of air. Kogenvin is currently assessing the air in the Arctic Circle, from where he spoke to Culturefile about his earth-shaking art. So I'm in, off the west coast of Arctic Norway, about um, 100 kilometres or so southwest of Tromsø, in um, Nixund, an old formerly abandoned village in Vesterålen on the Erskines Peninsula. It's approaching the point of the year where the sun's rising at around 10 o'clock and it's setting at around 1.30 now. So we've nearly got this sort of um, point where the sunrise is blending into the sunset. There'll be one sort of pinks as the sun starts to come up and then this long blue hour as the sun's fading out again. Um, and then since the lunar eclipse the other week, the moon hasn't set. So then the moon is sort of wobbling around the same as the um, midnight sun would so there's this polar difference literally between the um, winter solstice and the summer solstice at the moment so yes it is quite dark outside we try to seize the day where possible but the polar low that's coming through at the moment and there's been a lot of rain has meant that it's been um, either not easy to get outside too icy or just not particularly attractive to be outside but there's um, huge rock mount we're on a mountain that happens to be an island where five houses fit which is connected by a seawall to another island where there's another 20 or so houses and then that's connected to the mainland which is a series of mountains by another seawall It's all golden hour then, is it? Nearly. There is... Depends. Like today, it was just a fade-in because um, the polar low made its emphasis felt and then the snow just started to come in just as the sun was coming up. I happened to be out for a walk at the time, so there was no discernible sunrise. But then the sunset was long-ish. So the colours are very different every day. And how did you end up there? I've just been doing a two-month residency at Kvitbraka in Balabog and we drove up from um, South Connemara and on the way south we've managed to snare a bit of extra time here and um, I've got good access to a pipe organ and those sort of things so it's it's a good spot on a two and a half thousand kilometre drive through Norway.
I'm originally an organist. I started when I was about seven. And um, so I've got a good 40 years worth of practice at trying to roughly work out what I'm doing. Um, and just recently, in the last few years, I've decided to spend some more time on my first instrument, figuring that I've spent enough time working with other instruments that I should have some kind of idea of where I want to go. And I've found ways to play it in a way that eluded me in my teens. It was just one of those things that, you know, you, sometimes your family sends you to the guitar lessons or um, drum lessons if you're lucky, or in this case they were um, electone, electronic organs as were quite popular in the 80s. I had a fairly early experience, I think I was about eight, and I was at home on my own and um, we had some quite decent speakers at home and we had a Hammond and um, I was holding down some um, pedals and had it up quite loud and a plate came off a shelf in the next room. I thought I'd broken a light somewhere, walked around the house and eventually found this plate sitting suspiciously in the middle of the floor. So it wasn't so much the destructive potential, it was realising that bass can do this, that there's a physical element to sound and that sound waves travel through things and that they can affect changes upon objects as well as people. It's literally displacing air and then you've got the vibrations that travel at a different rate through rock, metal, um, stone, um, buildings and that they're going to have a physical effect on the things that they're in contact with. So this idea of air, of moving air and, and what's traditionally happened in church spaces, in the big cabinet spaces, it's something that you, you kind of see happening from, from Bach onwards. Yeah, well, you um, listen to the Pascaglia and see very heavy piece. Like, it's basically... It's riffing, in a way, when you listen to the way um, some of these fugues work and the way it picks up speed. The recent recordings of pipe organs in Ireland and Sydney... I spent two months writing the piece in the cathedral. When they left at 5pm or 7 or 8pm, I would go in and then I would just lock up behind me and put the alarm on. So I had late night um, access. There's like a seven or eight second reverb in there. I'd often be playing in, you know, with just one or two lights on so you'd forget that you're in such a big room and then you'd hear the sound die out. I'm not really into playing on the stage. Um, I generally either play for the back of the room or the centre of the room if I'm doing a sound system-oriented gig. So, yes, we were in front of the speakers and we were very much part of it. And um, the audience, for me, were the spectacle, like seeing how people engaged with it. We were just... I, my partner was doing the lighting and I was doing the sound and it, we were sort of operating equipment, basically, to get the best out of the room and the best out of the situation. The idea is to make it loud enough to be physical, but not loud enough to be painful, so that there's a nice balance of frequencies through the body and that the low frequencies kind of cushion you to um, handle piling on the rest of the frequencies. Yeah, my days of going to very loud gigs, like my days of going to see ministry two nights in a row are far behind me.
Robert Kuganvan there on the 64-foot grand pipe organ at Sydney Town Hall. And that's from the album Beyond Enclosures, which is available from Bandcamp, a point worth underlining as you look over your Spotify-wrapped 2021. Lorik Schmorik's next as composer and artist Jennifer Walsh goes in search of children's presents this Christmas and discovers an uncanny invasion underway at Foyle's bookshop in her latest Things Know Things. It's late November, Omicron is looming and so my visits to bookshops have become tightly focused missions rather than leisurely excursions. The problem is, I'm looking for presents for my niece and nephew, age 7 and 9, and with kids' books, I don't want to buy something unless I can pick it up, check out the picture-to-text ratio and read a few pages, so on a quiet morning, I dash into foils. As expected, the children's section is full of books about wizards and fairy princesses, talking cats, vampires and superheroes, the whole panoply of fantastical and mythical creatures that populate kids' books. But something strikes me as unusual this year. There's a new type of magical creature on the block. Joining the witches and mermaids and dogs who can drive cars are robots. And bizarrely enough, they're in nature settings. In David Lucas's short picture book, The Robot and the Bluebird, a broken-hearted, busted-up robot drags itself off the scrap heap to help an ailing bluebird too weak to fly south. He lets the little bluebird sleep in his chest, which makes him feel like he has a warm, living, beating heart. The robot carries the bluebird through the frozen wastes, sheltering her from cold and storms before dying. The bluebird survives to live on, with many other birds, in the dead robot's heart. The Little Wooden Robot and the Log Princess by Tom Gold, another picture book, takes the animals living inside robots theme and adds some classic fairy tale characters. In this story, a king and queen who can't have a child commission a witch and an inventor to give them some children. The witch makes a log princess and the inventor makes a little wooden robot. The log princess takes the form of a human girl during the day, but when she falls asleep each night, she turns into a log until she is woken by the magic words, Awake, little log, awake sort of like a virtual assistant who is also a child and a log. Due to a circus-related error, the log princess gets sent very far away in log rather than human form, which launches the little wooden robot on a quest to find his sister, a quest which seems doomed to end very badly, except that the little wooden robot has some friends in the form of beetles who nest in his workings, who step in to save the day. And last, but not least, is Peter Brown's wild robot novels, which revolve around the central character of Roz, the robot. Roz's cargo ship sinks in a storm, and she washes ashore on an island inhabited only by animals. After accidentally killing all the members of a family of geese, save one of their eggs, Roz becomes mother to a gosling. Roz and Bright Bill, as her goose son is called, go on to be devoted to one another. 
They understand that they're a strange family, but also that they kind of like it that way. Roz's AI comes in handy for learning to communicate with all the animals on the island, which is just as well as the climate emergency is putting the animals' lives at risk and she might be able to help. These books are beautifully written, full of heart and compassion, and they offer something new for us as readers. The experience of watching a technology absorbed into children's literature so deeply that the nature robot becomes a genre character alongside witches and fairies. The robot as wild being, as helper, mother, ally. The benevolent, nature-friendly robot making kin with humans and non-humans alike. And most importantly, children. Jennifer Walsh there with her latest Things Know Things and have a look at at Culture File Pod on Twitter for details of those robot-loving books. Now, Made in Ireland is the laudably restrained title of a juggernaut of a craft show just opened in Kilkenny and which will come to Dublin early next year before heading north at the border. Working with the Design and Crafts Council of Ireland, the trio of Hilary Morley, Stephen O'Connell and Mary Gallagher brought the exhibition to life over the course of a year, whittling down the huge open call to the selection of glass, porcelain, wood, wool and steel, now on show in the National Design and Craft Gallery, where Culture Files' Anya Gallagher went to meet the team and the makers. Probably the nucleus of where this originated was in the ending of the RDS craft exhibition, which took place in Dublin annually. It was a huge part of the calendar for craftspeople, and very suddenly that very prominent event was withdrawn from the annual cultural calendar. So there were many of us, I suppose, in the sector, the craft sector, and working with craft that were very concerned that there mightn't be that wonderful opportunity for all makers to actually apply to an open call situation to be exhibited in a national setting. I'm Hilary Morley and I'm co-curator as well as one of the project team members. One show springs to mind in all of the team and I think uh, it has to be the RHA summer exhibition every year. I, as an artist who isn't well known, can actually apply to this exhibition and maybe find my piece of work on a wall next to somebody like, I don't know, Louis Le Bocquet or one of the elder statesmen of Irish art. So I think that's the sort of opportunity we wanted to offer to craftspeople. So that not so much that it would be more of a democratic approach, but maybe just to add that slice of excitement to the craft world as exists in the art world. My name is Joshua Gabriel. I'm part of a family business, Gabriel Furniture. We were based in the west of Ireland, in South Galway, and we specialise in bespoke furniture, custom furniture, and we're down here today at the Kilkenny Design Centre, um, where I have a piece, and I'm delighted to be taking part in the exhibition here. So in the designs I create, I have particular attention to try to capture movement in timber. For me, timber is such a solid material and can be such a solid form. I think it gets more enhanced when you can capture movement in timber or movement in wood to create a shape which would not be naturally associated with timber. 
I like to imagine a shape which starts very simply, i.e. a straight line, and then to take straight lines and to create twists and spirals, but using straight lines only, and then you create a much more complex shape. There was a resounding response to the open call. There was over 420 submissions originally, which was eventually sort of whittled down to about 110 exhibitors. I'm Stephen O'Connell. I'm one of the, also the co-curator of the exhibition. It's really diverse, it's really interesting, and it all sits very well together, we think. And that's all down to the, the standard of the work, really. I'm Mary Gallagher, the editor of the Made in Ireland catalogue and a member of the project team. I suppose people are used to seeing ceramics and glass, but perhaps not the variety of work in in those materials. I think that that's really interesting for people to see how the same material can be used in many different ways. And then in relation to jewellery, not only gold and silver, but also wood. I'm Rowena Sheen and I'm a jewellery designer and maker and I work mostly in native Irish woods so I try and use as much local and sustainably sourced materials as possible. So I use a lot of yew wood and then I combine it with silver and I've been working a bit in holly as well more recently and experimenting with different woods. So where do you source the wood? (laughs) Mainly, again, I, I try not to buy wood that's been specifically cut down for commercial purposes. So a lot of it tends to be salvaged from either storm damaged wood or trees that were being cut down for another purpose. A lot of the the yew that I'm working with at the moment came from a country estate in Limerick that uh, had a beautiful yew-lined avenue of trees that were being cut down to widen the road. So my father actually rescued them (laughs) from the bulldozers about 30 years ago and they've been drying in the shed ever since. So he figured it was about time I put them to good use. I was looking at your pieces inside and the pieces of wood look really... Kind of like they have quite a weight to them that you wouldn't imagine wood has and like a really, really dense finish almost. Like they don't they don't really look like pieces of wood in one way. They they almost look like pieces of not plastic, but they look more dense or something. How do you get that finish on them? So I'm really glad that that's how it comes across. So I get a lot of the pieces laser cut and then I finish them by hand. And I initially was playing around with the laser cutting. And one of the main materials that people use is perspex or acrylic. And I love the finish that that gives the really high gloss, quite man-made visual. But I really didn't want to be working in plastics. I really wanted to be working in natural materials. So basically, it's just a lot and a lot and a lot of sanding. I very often don't have any fingerprints on my fingers because I spend so much time sanding. And then I finish them off with, I make a beeswax polish. So my father is also a beekeeper. So I get all the beeswax from his hives and make a polish from that. And the U does have a really fine grain as well. So it does polish up really, really nicely. So when you're kind of walking around, are you always on the lookout for fallen trees? Yes, (laughs) absolutely. Well, anyone who knows me, I like in the spring, I often get calls and texts from various friends and even people I don't know now through social media saying, oh, this tree just came down. Do you have any interest in it? So again, the shed and my studio and my spare bedroom are all filling up with random bits of wood. There's very little 
there of the what people might see as traditional Irish craft. But having said that, a lot of the work demonstrates a great respect for tradition in the way it's, it's produced. There's one maker, Beth Moran. She's responsible for the whole thing from start to finish. She rears the sheep, she shears the sheep, she spins the wool, she weaves the hangings or the scarves. So it's, it's remarkable that that, um, that is happening today. Anya Gallagher there with that report from the Made in Ireland exhibition, which is at the National Craft and Design Gallery Kilkenny until the end of January and which will open in Farmley next summer. I like people who dare, the late photographer Peter Hujar famously said. Hujar was an ardent chronicler of transgressive characters, of drag performers, artists and downtown party hearts in the New York of the 1970s and 80s. But there were many facets of Hujar's photography and, according to artist Moira Davy, many seldom-seen images in the Hujar archive, images that, for her, are more inspiring than, say, Hujar's famous deathbed portrait of war. Warhol superstar Candy Darling. For her book, The Shabbiness of Beauty, Davy created a body of photographs in response to Hujar's, showing her new images alongside her selection of his, something that, as she explained to Culture Files' Rachel Andrews, required some daring of her own. I'm standing out in the hall of my building looking at Moira's knobby horse. The sweet horse, head covered in flies, and all the world holding the horse up against a vivid white sky. The book is basically a curatorial work, you curating your photos alongside the work of Peter Hujar, and that came about via an exhibition in Berlin. Yes, I was uh, invited by Gallery Buchholz to curate a show of Hujar's work in conversation with my own. It opened in February of 2020, but it didn't stay open for very long because that's exactly when the closures started. I had met Michael Mack in London maybe a year before the the Hujar show, and he asked me if I would like to do a book with him. After the show, I proposed a book based on the show, and he, yes, he accepted. How did you find engaging with Hujar's work? In the book, you say that it was sort of a scary prospect. Yes, definitely. It's scary because he was so incredibly good. He is so admired. I don't know anybody who doesn't like Ujara's work. He's admired. He's beloved. When he was alive, so many people had crushes on him. He's really such an important figure. So yeah, that definitely comes with risks if you're going to try and and engage with, with someone like that. Many of his photos have a been shown kind of over and over again. A lot of the sort of famous ones, like of Susan Sontag and William Burroughs and John Waters, those portraits, a lot of the the nudes. And I discovered when I was looking at the archives that there were so many photos that had 
never been seen, never been exhibited. You know, I had to really comb through my archives to find images that I could put in conversation with Hujars. And I really scraped the bottom of the barrel, I'm honest. <laughs> I discovered his work around 1989. Uh, my partner, Jason, found his incredible book, Portraits in Life and Death. And there were two or three shows, actually, of Hujar's work at that time. So I just continued to look at his work, to buy his books, to read about him. You know, more and more shows started to happen, especially in the 90s and the 2000s. He, you know, he wasn't so well-known during his lifetime. He was known, he was known amongst a certain you know, a group of people, a kind of cognoscenti or whatever. But, you know, he wasn't well-known in the way that Robert Maplethorpe was, for instance. It really took time for him to be widely exhibited. I was making portraits of my, of my dogs in the mid-90s, and I, I don't know if I, I I'm sure I, on an unconscious level, I was probably thinking of Hujar with the dogs. I didn't start making black and white portraits in two and a quarter and four by five again until 2016, 17, something like that. And then I was, def I was definitely thinking of Hujar, and I was also photographing a lot of horses in, in 2019. And I was consciously channeling Hujar when I made the horse photographs. They're very hard to photograph. They, for so many reasons, they, they don't really hold still. They're eating most of the time. They have their head down. He always photographed them with their heads up standing, beautiful postures. You have to be very patient to get photographs like that, or you have to know how to coax the horse somehow. I was doing it a lot in the dead of summer in August. They are swarmed by flies. They're constantly swishing their tails and their manes and their heads. You know, they're trying to dislodge the flies I had the wrong shutter speed my shutter speed was too slow so although sometimes I could get the the horse head not blurred the flies are blurred there's a famous photograph that Hujar took that Gary Schneider has been printing it's a horse you know standing uh, you see the whole body it's very frontal and Gary discovered something really interesting when he was making a digital print. He discovered flies on Hujar's horse, and they were sharp. They were completely sharp. So he knew what he was doing. I'm just a fumbler. I, I do too many things to do any one thing perfectly. <laughs> he was absolutely focused. 
Moira Davy there talking to Rachel Andrews, and The Shabbiness of Beauty is published by Mac. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more crisp snaps next Saturday tea time, or whenever you like if you do the podcast thing. Till then, bye now.